Good morning. I trust everyone had a good Thanksgiving holiday. I did. I hope the sound is okay. Brian was very gracious and tried to give me the head mic, but it would not fit. My head is just too big, so we're going to have to order the XL. So I apologize. I hope that you can hear. I'll try to speak up, but it's very, very good to see you all this morning. It is such an honor to be up here. Like Pastor Dave was saying, that's one thing that we, that, and I'm so thankful for, that is trying to be cultivated here at Park, especially with having gone to a plurality of elders and the leadership format that we are uh, endeavoring to have, that other individuals get the opportunity to preach. So thank you, Pastor Dave. As he just read, we are in Psalm 28 this morning. Psalm 28, it's a very short psalm, nine verses. I am scared, Lord. I am confused. I don't know what's going to happen. Where are you? Why haven't I heard anything from you yet? Are you even here? No, these aren't the thoughts, perhaps, of a new convert or someone who hasn't quite grasped the sovereignty, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. These are thoughts that I think pass through all of our minds at one point or another in our walk with the Lord. And I think they were some thoughts that perhaps passed through the psalmist's mind as we look this morning at Psalm 28. That's right, King David. I think as we look at Psalm 28 and as we look at the different portions and sections that Psalm 28 is divided up into, we will see that this psalm and the ultimate end to what we're going to look at that was up on the screen, that he is our strength and that he is our shield, comes out of the fact that God heard him, because there is nothing more confusing, there's nothing more that can throw us into a panic than what we see David going through here at the beginning when we're crying out to him, and there's crickets. Lord, I don't understand. I'm praying, I'm persevering in prayer, and yet I don't hear anything. Remember Mr. Whitaker last week? Uh, went through Psalm 27, and if you'll look at Psalm 27:14, where we left off, it's really the perfect springboard to Psalm 28, almost like one of my professors would say, almost like it was planned. But Psalm 14 says, wait for the Lord, be strong, and let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. What's really cool is that as it transitions to a new psalm here in Psalm 28, it's almost as if the psalmist in a different context is still waiting. Because as Pastor Dave read, the psalm starts off in verse 1, to you, O Lord, I call my rock, be not deaf to me, lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. We instantly see imagery of listening and of, and of crying out and of hearing, Lord, I'm calling to you, and yet I still haven't heard anything. The admonition for verse 14 of chapter 27, to wait patiently, I'm doing that, and I still haven't heard anything. And interestingly enough, even in some of our translations, if you look, I have the ESV and it says, be silent. Some translations say, remain silent, which kind of gives the idea in the illusion to the fact that he has been praying, that he has been lifting up his heart to God, and yet there is still nothing. 
So as we get into the text this morning, the first point that we're going to see is that David has a heart that is in distress. David has a heart that is in distress. And it's really kind of neat because the Psalms, if anything, are outpourings of the heart, right? It's been said if there was Prozac back then, half the Psalms wouldn't have been written because David would have been docile. But the Psalms are ups and downs. And what's really cool, brothers and sisters, is that as we look at this short nine-verse psalm here this morning, we're going to see that it starts out as a panicked lament, perhaps. It's, it's a lament as it begins. But then as he turns the corner, specifically in verse 6, it skyrockets to a praise. And there's a very particular reason for that, and we'll get to it in a little bit. But this is the emotion, as we looked at the emotional state of the psalmist, I think he's a little panicked. I think he's a little stressed. And once again, I am very well acquainted with panic. Uh, Just this week as I was preparing for the sermon, I'm very quick to not be completely, um, I won't say stable because that doesn't sound right, but I'm sure that we all know what I'm talking about. That we have at times when things don't go exactly the way that we want them to, We're looking around, and specifically what I'm talking about this morning, we can tend to panic. Look at verse 2. This is even more more clear when he says, Hear the voice of my pleas when I cry out to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. One one note on the pit. The pit was was a term in Hebrew literature for the place of the dead. And so what David is saying here, perhaps not so much that he is facing physical death that is imminent, but what he's saying is that, Lord, I have not heard from you, and until I hear from you, I'm as good as dead. I have to hear from you, Lord. I don't understand. I'm as good as one who goes down to the pit unless I hear from you. This is important for me because this might be one of the first things that I tend to doubt about my Heavenly Father if it's quiet. And it's what, the enemy, it's what the enemy may whisper in our ears as a believer when there's crickets, when it's quiet, when I'm crying out to him, when I think that he has not heard me. This is what he might say. He doesn't hear what you're saying. He's too busy. He's got better things to do. His grace has run out for you on this particular occasion. Do you know how many times you've asked him for forgiveness for this sin? He's probably not even listening. If we're not careful, when we're in this situation, we can easily despair. And that's where the enemy wants us to be, brothers and sisters. Any of the arrows that he throws and hurls our way, he wants you to get to a point of despair and ultimately to do what? To doubt his word for you. Remember Adam and Eve? They doubted. That's how the enemy got the inroad. God is withholding something from you, perhaps. God, you know, if you eat of the fruit, you will be like him. What's interesting to me is that I begin to doubt the very thing that he has declared for me so evidently and so plainly and clearly in his son. Turn with me, and we're going to look at a couple texts, so get your thumbs ready. Turn, uh, turn to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. There's three different accounts of this story. Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. 
This is the storm when it rages up on the sea. And it's interesting because Matthew and Luke's account don't mention this particularly, but Mark's does. In, Mar- in Matthew and Luke, it says that the disciples woke the Lord up and, say it, and said, Lord, we're perishing. And here in Mark, they call into question, once again, something that when I have called out to God, when the sea is raging, when I have a concern and I continue to go to him and I don't hear anything, what my instant reaction can often be. Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 35, says this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. These were professional fishermen, and they were panicked. They were terrified. Verse 38 But he was in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I think oftentimes, Lord, I'm going through this, and especially as an American, this is uncomfortable to me. Lord, don't you care that I'm not at my peak comfort level right now? Just remember this, folks, that he cares far more about my holiness than he does my happiness. He cares far more about my holiness than my happiness. And it's the same for Christ. It's the same path that led him to the cross and allowed his body to be broken on our behalf. But my my reaction, I would have been one of the ones who said that. I would have been one of the disciples that panicked, that called into question his love his care, his concern for me. Don't we do the same thing? Why haven't you answered me yet, Lord? I've been praying for this for two weeks. How long do I have to pray? Don't you care? Brothers and sisters, this is one thing we cannot do. We set ourselves up tremendously for the enemy when we call into question his love and his care for us. What do we do then when we call out to heaven, when we call to him and there's silence? It's the same thing that David does here and that we're told to do at the end of chapter 27. We continue praying. We persevere in praying. I was reading the other night the account of the Lord in the garden and how he just wanted them to stay awake. And if the Lord was praying in the garden with the severity that he was, where it says that he was grieved and distressed in his body to the point of death. Have I even gotten close? And I would say no. I would say not at all. We continue praying. We persevere praying even when we don't have the words, even when it's just heartache, even when it's just emotions that come out. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
Is that mysterious or what? The very Trinity, the very God of the universe comes in and gets and is at your disposal. And more so, he cares. He cares about what you are going through enough to help you. As it's been said, we needed help. What did the Lord do? He, let, he, he did one better than just give us help in general. He left us the helper. That's why the parable of the persistent widow is so applicable for this morning. Because you look at, an, you look at the parable that the Lord told, and it's an unjust judge. And because the woman was persistent and continued more or less to bug him, she got what she needed. And the Lord just very tenderly says, you take the character of this judge, and then you know the character of the father who I've been telling you about. How much more are you, one, not going to be a nuisance to him, but two, is he going to be thrilled and joyed to give you what you ask for? And specifically in that context, the justice that you seek. Our father is loving. Remember Isaac and Rebecca? You remember how long Rebecca was barren before she gave birth? We looked at this recently in Sunday school. 20 years. Prayed for 20 years. One final note, as we look at these two verses, as we have looked at these two verses, what does David say? He says, and there's that imagery of Lord, do not be deaf. Once again, please hear me. Hear me when I call to you. Don't be silent. Don't remain silent. The end of verse 2 is important. He says, when I lift up my hands toward what? Just in general, when I'm lifting my hands in any, area, in any direction? No. When I lift my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. What is he talking about there? He's talking about the holy of holies that's described in 1 Kings 6.16. He's talking about the mercy seat. He's talking about the only way that you and I at all approach a holy, righteous God. A little bit about the holy of holies, just to refresh your memory. The room that was known as the holy of holies was the innermost and most sacred area of the ancient tabernacle of Moses and temple of Jerusalem. It was constructed as a perfect cube. Us with OCD would have loved it. It contained only the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of Israel's special relationship with God. It was accessible only, listen, only to the Israelite high priest once a year on Yom Kippur. Leviticus 16 lays this out. What happened on the Day of Atonement? The high priest was permitted to enter this small, windowless enclosure to burn incense and sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat of the ark. And by so doing, the high priest atoned for his own sins and those of the people. We have no idea because we are just used to grace. We are just used to not having to go through all of the customs and everything that the Jews of the Old Testament would be, you and I, brothers and sisters, live on the glorious other side of the cross. We live on the fact of the veil, all of this that was a foreshadow of the, of the substance, the shadow leading to the substance, the veil being torn from top to bottom. We live in the age of grace, but the Jew 
Do you realize when a Jew would have read Hebrews, he would have been like, yeah, this is a much better covenant. This is what we have been waiting for. And now the accessibility. So what David is saying in the very beginning in verse 2 is that he said, is that I know the only way that I can appeal to you for mercy at all is on the basis of the mercy seat, and that is on the basis of the sacrifice. It's the way that it's always been. It's the same way for you and I today, brothers and sisters. Whenever I share the gospel, I have to be very clear that God demanded a sacrifice. That the primary thing that the primary issue that separates men and women from God today is their sin. And so the beauty of the cross is that, and I'll never forget this, R.C. Sproul, whose righteousness are you depending on that first moment you take your last breath on the other side? Is it anything of you? And I mean anything. Or are you completely and perfectly and wonderfully resting in the sacrifice, the life and work of Christ. Because we know, as the scriptures say, that if we confess our, with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll, we will be saved. And I was just talking about this with a brother this morning. It's not that you just simply make a decision left or right, you know, and left is better than right. God opens your heart. He opens your eyes and gives you a new heart and a new birth, one that loves him and loves to be with his people and loves his word. And I pray that that's where each one of us are this morning. Let's continue on. This psalm, once again, as we see it divided into two major categories of verses 1 to 5 being a lament, verses 6 to 9 being a praise. The four, our next point in our outline is that not only does he begin with a heart in distress, but he moves now to a heart that is longing for justice. He is longing for justice. We're now introduced to really the source of David's ailment and why David is coming to God in the first place, what his petition actually is. There's this group of the wicked, of the evildoers that are coming at him. And we're not really sure if it's a corporate threat because remember he was king or if it's just individually but one thing he is doing very specifically here is praying, God, give me justice. You have to stop these men. Look at verse 3. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil. David, before he um, spe specifically describes these individuals in verses 4 and 5, he makes this plea in verse 3, where he says, do not drag me off with the wicked. Was David aware of his sinful heart? <laughs> yeah. Was he aware of the fact that he possessed in himself everything that those wicked evildoers does in, in the rebellious heart? He very much was. He's pleading with God, don't deal with me as I know my sins deserve. Don't drag me off to where I know that I should be taken. One commentator says, David is aware that in himself, he is able to behave exactly like the wicked. He knows that anything any other sinner is capable of doing, he is too. And I would submit to you that that's the same for you and for I, and for you and for me, excuse me. Never get overconfident. Remember the disciples did so when the Lord was trying to kindly say, give, him, give them their crash course 
before he went to the cross in John 14 through 17. Never, never think that you are above any sin or above being tempted in any way, because that's right where the enemy would love you to be. But David also knew of grace, because one of he wrote this psalm, and it's one of my favorite verses in Psalm 103:10, where it says, going back to verse eight, that the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. Praise God. And then verse 10, I think you should highlight in your Bible. I'll be bold enough to say that. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. And are we not thankful? We know, as David says here in verse 3, that each one of us deserve hell. We know that each one of us deserve to be dragged off with the wicked. And now, as we were mentioning just a little bit ago, the only reason, it's not because we're in this building right now. It's not because we come and we do anything in regards to singing or any amount of Bible reading. The only reason that you and I have confidence toward a holy God is because of Christ and because of his sacrifice. We must always remember this, brothers and sisters, it is nothing in, our, not, nothing in ourselves, as we just sang a little bit ago, but it's always, always his mercy. Peter, Lord, even if everyone else denies you, I never will. And he did. But let's continue to unpack as we move on. What is he praying for in verse 3? He says, don't drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. What's going on here? Hypocrisy. Hey, buddy, how's it going? Everything's all right. All right, we'll see you later. You speak peace with your neighbor, but there's evil in your heart. There's any group. It should be genuine and authentic. It's us. And as we move on to verse 4, he says this is where he is particularly calling out for justice against this group. Lord, give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. And as we, and as we look at 4 and 5, look at the language that is used, the works of hands of the evildoers and the works of the hands of the Lord, which they do not acknowledge. Here in 4 and 5, as we'll get to in just a second, in 5, they are praying for justice. That, or, God, or David is praying for justice against them. Guys, there's no doubt we live in a broken, fallen, distorted world. It takes no amount of time turning the television on or looking at the internet to see this fact. We're... We are living in a world that is ever-growing, ever-increasing in its sin, in flagrant sin. They want us to join in in celebrating such sins, and certainly not that we are above anyone. But if we hold fast to anything, we hold fast to him who loves us. But this does bring us to, a, uh, to an interesting point, one that we're not going to get into this morning, so don't worry. But... The idea of the imprecatory psalms about calling down judgment on one's enemy in light of the New Testament mandate to 
as the Lord said in Matthew 5, to love our enemies and pray for those who spitefully use us. So in the Psalms, you see numerous Psalms as such. God, destroy them. Wipe them out. Stop them. But once again, Matthew 5, pray for, the, pray for your enemies and for those who spitefully use you. Which is it? Just remember this. Just a quick passing comment. Just remember the Psalms were expressions of the heart by individuals who were longing for evil to be defeated. And this is a good and right desire. We should, as believers, always be praying that evil will be vanquished and that righteousness will, as Amos says, flow like an ever-flowing stream. We should hate and recoil at millions of babies being murdered and God's name being laughed at frivolously and his design for marriage just being scorned. I hope that that hurts you because it certainly hurts our God. We should long for justice. Ultimately, though, we leave it to him. We are not to take matters, of course, into our own hands. Turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Paul comments on this idea and this concept. Chapter 12, beginning in verse 17. Romans 12, 17, when he says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but what? Overcome evil with good. It is so hard because the most natural thing to do, if I've been wronged, is to take it into my own hands. It is very clear from Scripture that that is not what I should do. Vengeance is the Lord's. And so specifically, when it comes to the imprecatory psalms or when it comes to those psalms that contain those ideas, while we see judgment being called down on enemies in the psalms, it does appear that from Matthew and from this passage we just read in Romans, while we still long for justice and righteousness to reign supreme, we do what David is doing at the beginning of the psalm, and we wait. And we commit. We commit our heart to him who is sovereign and pray that perhaps he would grant the sinner repentance while stopping their sin. That's what we pray for. Don't forget that the people who think differently than we do in regards to Christ and in regards to the Bible are not our enemy. They're our mission field. They're the ones we are yearning to have their eyes opened and as the scriptures say, the God of the sage has blinded them. We pray that God in his mercy would grant them repentance. But we do pray that the evil would stop because we love God and we love justice and we love righteousness. And as we go back to our psalm, as we said, ultimately it is up to him.
he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and he will judge those whom he will judge. Verse 5 says, Because they do not regard the works of the Lord. The reason for verse 4, the reason that David wants to give to them according to their work, is because they don't recognize the works of the Lord or the works of his hands. So you compare and contrast the works of these evildoers with their hands that will ultimately end up in nothing. The reason David is saying, judge them, Lord, is because they do not recognize you and the work that you have done. And then the end of verse 5, he will tear them down and build them up no more. It's real easy to be intimidated by somebody who is smart. And that's why no one's intimidated of me. It's real easy to be intimidated by someone who has a lot of answers and who holds many degrees and says the Bible is nonsense. But there's no reason to be. There's no reason to be because of what David says here. They can say their piece. Christopher Hitchens was allowed to mock God to the uttermost. But you know what? He breathed his last. People who mock God are able to do it. God gives them breath to do it. But their end is coming. Al Mohler said one time, when asked of him, he does a, a podcast of current events and of news, current news, and he was asked one time, when you, when you do all of this and you're, a, you're abreast of all of the current events, how do you keep from getting discouraged in light of everything that is going on? He said this one verse, when Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. No matter what happens, brothers and sisters, no matter what it looks like on the outside of these walls, God's going to win. He's going to, and exactly as he said in Scripture, I declare it, and it's going to happen. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. So as we continue to move along, once again, verses 1 to 5 have been this lament. But now we're going we're gonna to get into some good stuff because he's going to skyrocket to the moon. And this brings us to our third point. David now, in verses 6 and 7, we're going to see that he has a heart full of joy. He has a heart full of joy. He says, Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. Boy, has the tone of this psalm shifted. Can you see why? I would submit to you that it's verse 6. And specifically, maybe three words. He has heard. And and despite of what the enemy was whispering in his ear, despite of what his emotions were telling him at the time, despite what everything of of the outside stimulus of David's mind was thinking, he persevered praying and he trusted God, and God heard him. There's nothing sweeter. I would, I would say that that is the shifting point of this psalm, where now it's just up from here. To be perfectly honest as well, just a side note, I think there's a chance the psalm could have been written in two different segments because you see such a stark contrast that verses, he, it's almost like he gets a, a sketch pad, I don't know, or a, a notepad if he had one back in those times, 
he sits down and he just pours out his heart. I don't know if any of you like to write as a means to get your thoughts out on paper, but he gets his thoughts out on verses from verses one to five. Lord, please hear me. Please save me from these people. Puts his pen down perhaps and comes back later because it's almost like, boy, I have to finish this story. He heard me. He saved me. He delivered me. And as we're going to look at in just a second, the praise about God's character is almost an outflowing of the fact that he heard him. This is the reality that blows me away. I'm sure you guys have thoughts, and I have thoughts, which are good. But it's not hard for me to see how grand and how huge God is. We see. I love to watch science programs, and wow, they've got another telescope, and we can see even further out into the universe. We can see with microscopes how detailed everything is. It's not hard for me to see how powerful God is. But where my mind breaks down and where sin can get in the mix is when I think and remember that he cares for me. Somebody wrote a book one time, and the whole theme of the book was that he is the king. He's the potentate. He's the king of the universe. But he's the king who cares. He's the king, ultimately, we know who cared enough to come and to die for us. You see, the enemy, once again, just to remind you, will frequently whisper into your ear, He's too busy. Do you see how big the universe is? He couldn't possibly care about this one small fact of, and part of your life. But he does. <laughs> That's the beautiful part here. Don't buy into, the, into Satan's lies that your father has no time or interest in your life. He does. And just remember this. May I, may I submit that just because it hasn't happened yet, doesn't mean that it's not going to happen, but I'm sure I'm the only one who has ever experienced this. His time is different than our time. And if I have to wait a little bit longer, then I make this judgment. Well, I guess it's just not meant to be. As we're about to enter the season for which that's the prime example, Galatians 4.4, may I remind you, says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, Born under the law to do what? To redeem those under the law. I'm just curious. Do you think anyone from the 400-year period of silence, from Malachi to Matthew, thought, well, I guess that's not going to happen. I think someone could have. Or better yet, or hold on, and yet after that 400-year period of silence, what happened? In a quiet night in Bethlehem. Something seemingly so insignificant happened. A baby was born. Not insignificant, Ellen. Or I know where she was. Um, or what about another 400-year period where the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt? Can you imagine that? You grew up and you died, and another generation would grow up and they would die, and their whole life all they knew was slavery. Did they ever doubt that God heard them? Yes. And yet... What happened again? A baby was born. And Moses came on the scene. No, brothers and sisters, David here is rejoicing because God has heard his prayer. He has heard his pleas for me for mercy. He then goes on in verse 7, like we said, The Lord is my strength. In light of the fact that he has heard me, he goes with this beautiful exclamation that, Lord, you are my strength and my shield. 
In him my heart trusts, and I am helped. My heart exults, and with my song I give thanks to him. What's the purpose of trials and tribulations in periods of time where you wait and in silence and nothing happens? Isn't the overall purpose to trust him more? He says very clearly, in him my heart trusts. I would submit to you that's a little nugget. That's a little purpose overall that he is trying to reach with all of us. When he takes you up to the ledge, I've got you. I'm not going to let you go. One thing that I realize, especially recently, is very lacking with me, my faith. And the Lord is saying, trust me, I've got it. I'm powerful. And if I could just get my mind around the fact that he is equally caring as he is powerful, maybe my faith would grow. But listen to this. And if you're taking notes, write this down. If not, just listen. And I'll repeat it. When we trust him more, we praise him more. And when we praise him more, we are more fully satisfied in him. This gives him more glory, which is the way he's designed it to work. I'll repeat that. When we trust him more, we praise him more. And when we praise him more, we are more fully satisfied in him. This gives him more glory, which is the way he's designed it to work. He has not called us to be depressed, sad individuals walking around with no hope. That while we are suffering and in the midst of that suffering being conformed into the image of his son, he has called us to have joy. He has called us to be reflectors of his son in hope and in behavior. Our fourth and final point is found in verses 8 and 9. And that is the final heart that we see that David has is a heart for God's people. A heart for God's people. As he begins to finish this psalm out, he moves from simply an individual praise, which we just saw in verses 6 and 7, to a corporate praise and a corporate prayer for God's people. He states in verse 8, The Lord is the strength of His people. He is the saving refuge of His anointed Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. God is our protector, brothers and sisters. He is our deliverer. He is the one that we run to for safety. As David said previously, he is our shield and our strength to protect us from all of the fiery darts that the wicked one will throw at us and everything that the world might throw at us to try to derail us. One interesting thing to note is that in verse 8, as he is saying his anointed, it's probably referring to the plural group, the corporate group that David is referring to. We know that David as king was anointed as king of Israel, but this is probably referring to the anointed group of God's people. And just remember that as David finishes this out and as he's praying for God's people to be preserved, he's very much modeling the one who would eventually come, the Lord Jesus. And you don't have to turn there. But in John 17, 
in his high priestly prayer. In John 17, verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In verse 15 of that chapter, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. The Lord Jesus prayed. And then down in verse 20, he says, I do not ask for these only being his disciples in the immediate but also for those who will believe in me through their word. You know who that is? That's you. That's me. That's us who believe on account of the word and the witness and the testimony of our brothers, the disciples who went before us. But what's interesting is that David is modeling all good leadership in praying for the people. Once again, we praise the Lord for, I praise the Lord, and I know we all do for, Park Baptist Church, and one thing our elders do, just so you know, is pray for us. They pray for all of us that the Lord would protect us. They pray for us in various and sundry ways. And what David is doing here and praying for the people is modeling good, godly leadership. And as he says in verse 9, O save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. Did David know anything about being a shepherd? I think so. And what David is praying here is what Grant was talking about last week with the parable of the lost sheep. In those last three words, carry them forever, regardless of how strong you think you are. The beautiful image of our salvation is that Christ throws you on his back. And in light of what he has done for you, his work on the cross, nothing of your own, he will carry you into glory. And we will see him face to face, brothers and sisters, one day. Just some final thoughts as we close. As we look at this psalm, just remember, in those times of silence, what do we do? We breathe. (laughs) Really quick, one cool thing, when you look at this psalm, verses 1 and how it's broken up into four different sections, verse 1 and 2 are what? It's almost inward that David is calling out to God, Lord, help me. The second section is in verses 3 to 5, save me from the evildoers who are out there. Verses 6 and 7 are what? Lord, you heard me. Thank you so much. Verses 8 and 9 are what? Protect your people. In, out. In, out. You kind of see that pattern. Breathe. Next, we persevere in praying in the way that this psalmist did. Regardless of how you feel and regardless of what the enemy might be whispering in your ear, brother and sister, we, per- we pray and we persevere to that end, knowing the heart of our Heavenly Father and the fact that He will show up for us. We remind ourselves of these truths of Scripture, just a few of which we looked at this morning, but there are so many more about His love for you and his surety that he will show up and act on your behalf and trust him. That's the goal. That's what he wants us to increase because without faith it is impossible to please him. And as recently Pastor Dave looked at James, remember this, to count it all joy when you fall into various trials because of what? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full or perfect effect or work, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Do we long to hear from God as badly as David did in Psalm 28? Where he said, Lord, I'm as good as dead unless I hear from you. One commentator said, and this is, I thought this was a great quote. James Boyce said this regarding Psalm 28. That if the only way life is received, sustained, and preserved is by hearing the words of God, shouldn't we be profoundly serious about developing our relationship with Him? Indeed, much more serious than we are. If we, are really, if we really believed that we were perishing apart from hearing the voice of God, as David apparently did, wouldn't we study the Bible more? And wouldn't we pray more? Wouldn't we be always crying out to Him in prayer and seeking His face regularly through diligent Bible study? I know I'm very guilty of that. That unless I'm in trouble, I'm good, God. I'm doing all right. As it's been said, when I open my Bible, God opens His mouth. And on the converse side, very quickly, when we do hear from Him, when He responds graciously, how should we respond? We should thank Him. (laughs) We should praise Him. We should not be like one of the nine who went away not thanking Him. We should strive to be a blessing to others. As Pastor Scott mentioned this past Tuesday night from this pulpit, everything He's given to me is not to heap blessings upon myself, but it's to extend myself and be a blessing to others. And finally, I hope it strengthens our faith. I hope that when He takes us up to the edge and He preserves our life, or that when I call out to Him and I hear from him that it strengthens my faith. And that's the point this morning, brother and sister. It's the message of Psalm 28, that no matter what you're going through, from the youngest believer to the most senior of saint, that God hears you, and he will act on your behalf. I'd like to finish reading two two passages that I think sum up very well what we've looked at this morning. Isaiah 40, 29 through 31 says, He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles, They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And finally, just a few chapters over, Psalm 34. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Let's pray. Dear Father, we're so eternally grateful that as David mentioned here in Psalm 28, You are our shield and you are our strength. Lord, comparing verse 1 to verse 6 is so humbling because I know that I panic often. 
I know that my heart very often does not trust you. But Lord, even in those moments of silence, when there are crickets, and we want to panic, may we not stay in a state of distress, but may we trust your heart for us. Father, we love you. We are weak, and we need you desperately. Thank you for the cross and for Jesus Christ dying on our behalf. We love you, and we praise you, and we thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.